Hello, listeners. As an enhancement to your listening experience, I am now going to present these archive episodes unedited in their entirety, which includes all of my afterthoughts. So, continue listening after the outro music if you want to hear what I thought of the episode. And if you are enjoying the podcast, please support it by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. But NASA was a new organization, only about four years old at that point, had done a lot of thinking about this. And they identified the lunar landing as perhaps the only way we could catch up with the Soviet Union. And as the president said, uh, we, we were going we to get in this game. And he was saying, this is, this is a new ocean. This is the new ocean, and we must sail upon it. And we must be a leader on it. And that caught people's imagination, because at that time, uh, we had the uh, ideological competition uh, between East and, and West, and uh, concerns about the future of, uh, of all humanity on, on Earth. So it was a very That was Neil Armstrong commenting on President Kennedy's moon speech. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 207 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 11, Commander Neil Armstrong, Part 2. Last episode, we left Neil performing test pilot duty at Edwards Air Force Base. But the view from 207,000 feet on the X-15 only whetted Armstrong's appetite. In 1958, Armstrong was selected for the U.S. Air Force's Man in Space Soonest Program. In November 1960, Armstrong was chosen as part of the pilot consultant group for the X-20 Dinosaur, a military space plane under development by Boeing for the U.S. Air Force. And on March 15, 1962, he was selected by the U.S. Air Force as one of the seven pilot engineers who would fly the space plane when it got off the design board. But there was a problem. These programs looked like they would never make it off the design board. Now by this time, John Glenn had already demonstrated that astronauts were more than just passengers by taking over manual control of his Mercury spacecraft when the automatic system malfunctioned. Armstrong then realized he had been too hasty in initially rejecting the astronaut program. It wasn't easy to think about leaving Edwards, but NASA was headed to the moon. In the months after the announcement that applications were being sought for the second group of NASA astronauts, Armstrong became more and more excited about the prospects of both the Apollo program and of investigating a new aeronautical environment. Armstrong's astronaut application arrived about a week past the June 1, 1962 deadline. But Richard Day, with whom Armstrong had worked closely at Edwards, saw the late arrival of the application and slipped it into the pile before anyone noticed. At Brooks Air Force Base at the end of June, Armstrong underwent a medical examination that many of the applicants described as painful and at times seeming pointless. 
Deke Slayton called Armstrong on September 13, 1962 and asked whether he would be interested in joining the NASA Astronaut Corps as part of what the press dubbed the New Nine. Without hesitation, Armstrong said yes. Armstrong was assigned to Gemini 8 and would become the first American civilian to fly in space. According to Mike Collins, Armstrong was, quote, far and away the most experienced test pilot among the astronauts, end quote. Armstrong had seen his share of close calls and more than once had faced malfunctions he had never seen in simulations, including one on his Gemini 8 mission. The crew assignments for Gemini 8 were announced on September 20, 1965. Armstrong was made the command pilot and David Scott the pilot. The mission launched on March 16, 1966, and it was to be the most complex mission thus far, with a rendezvous and docking with the unmanned Agena target vehicle and the second American extravehicular activity by Dave Scott. In total, the mission was planned to last 75 hours and 55 orbits. After the Agena lifted off at 10 a.m. Eastern, the Titan II carrying Armstrong and Scott ignited at 11.41.02 Eastern Time, putting them in an orbit from where they would chase the Agena. The rendezvous and first-ever docking between two spacecraft was successfully completed after six and a half hours in orbit. Contact with the crew was intermittent due to lack of tracking stations covering their entire orbits. Then a problem arose. Armstrong and Scott were monitoring the instruments on the joined Gemini-Agena spacecraft when suddenly they began to tumble. They believed that the problem was a stuck thruster on the Agena. Armstrong knew if they let it continue, the tumbling might break the two craft apart. So Neil undocked from the Agena, but the tumbling got faster and faster, spinning a full turn every second as the earth and sun alternatively flashed by the windows. Armstrong's vision began to blur as he searched the instrument paddle. Then Armstrong tried to methodically isolate the stuck thruster, but he could not. If the spin worsened, he and Scott were in danger of losing consciousness. Then it would be only a matter of time before the Gemini flew apart. Armstrong was forced to turn off the main thrusters and switch on the backup system, reserved only for re-entry. Doing this essentially aborted the flight. Half a minute later, Armstrong stopped the spin but lost the mission, including Dave Scott's EVA. Here's the clip. Other than disappointment, Armstrong carried no special burden from the incident. He had no score to settle. He had been in the test flight business too long not to view Gemini 8 
as just another page in the history of his profession, another encounter with the unexpected. Throughout the astronaut office, there were a few people, most notably Walter Cunningham, who publicly stated that Armstrong and Scott had ignored the malfunction procedures for such an incident, and that Armstrong could have salvaged the mission if he had turned on one of the two reaction control system's rings, saving the other for the mission objectives. But these criticisms were unfounded. No malfunction procedures were written, and it was not possible to switch on only one reaction control system ring. Flight Director Gene Krantz wrote, The crew reacted as they were trained, and they reacted wrong because we trained them wrong. End quote. The mission planners and controllers had failed to realize that when two spacecraft are docked together, they must be considered to be one spacecraft. The last assignment for Armstrong in the Gemini program was as the backup command pilot for Gemini 11, announced two days after the landing of Gemini 8. Having trained for two flights, Armstrong was quite knowledgeable about the systems and was more in a teaching role for the rookie backup pilot, William Anders. The launch was on September 12, 1966, with Pete Conrad and Dick Gordon on board, who successfully completed the mission objectives, while Armstrong served as CAPCOM. Following the flight, President Johnson asked Armstrong and his wife to take part in a 24-day goodwill tour of South America. Also on the tour, which took in 11 countries and 14 major cities, were Dick Gordon, George Lowe, their wives, and other government officials. In Paraguay, Armstrong impressed dignitaries by greeting them in their local language. In Brazil, he talked about the exploits of the Brazilian-born Alberto Santos Dumont, who was regarded as having beaten the Wright brothers with the first flying machine with his 14 BIS. Now let's move on to Neil's experience with the Apollo program. On January 27, 1967, the date of the Apollo 1 fire, Armstrong was in Washington, D.C. with Gordon Cooper, Dick Gordon, Jim Lovell, and Scott Carpenter for the signing of the United Nations Outer Space Treaty. The astronauts chatted with the assembled dignitaries until 6.45 p.m. when Carpenter went to the airport and the others returned to the Georgetown Inn where they each found messages to phone the manned spacecraft center. During these telephone calls, they learned of the deaths of Gus Grissom, Ed White, and Roger Chaffee. Armstrong and the group spent the rest of the night drinking scotch and discussing what had happened. Here's Neil commenting on Apollo 1. Um. The first Apollo spacecraft was on a, uh, a pre-flight test with the crew in the, in the module atop the rocket on the pad at Kennedy Space Center. But then what, it was Cape Canaveral. The cockpit was pressurized to at one atmosphere with pure oxygen, a little over. 
and a spark ignited some of the flammable material in the cockpit. The, the hatch uh, was an inward opening hatch that the crew was unable to quickly open and the crew was, was killed in the fire. It was a tragedy and it was going to take us a long time to recover from that. We clearly had an unsafe spacecraft. We had to redesign it and rebuild it and it was a two-year delay. Now, there were only four years left to the end of the decade at that point, so it's, it's take, we're losing half of the time in the race, race to the moon. But there was a, there was a benefit. Uh, every, every advantage is accompanied by a disadvantage, and every disadvantage, there's a, every cloud is a silver lining. So we were looking for the silver lining. The silver lining we got was that we, were able, we had two years to re, improve the spacecraft, not just the fire resistance, but a lot of other things in the system that really needed improving. So we could attack those and make a gigantic improvement in the quality of the spacecraft design and its construction. On April 5, 1967, the same day the Apollo 1 investigation released its report on the fire, Armstrong assembled with 17 other astronauts for a meeting with Deke Slayton. The first thing Slayton said was, quote, the guys who are going to fly the first lunar mission are the guys in this room, end quote. According to Gene Cernan, Armstrong showed no reaction to the statement. To Armstrong, it came as no surprise. The room was full of veterans of Project Gemini, the only people who could fly the lunar missions. Slayton talked about the planned missions and named Armstrong to the backup crew for Apollo 9, which at that stage was planned to be a medium-Earth orbit test of the Lunar Module-Command-Service Module combination. Unfortunately, there were design and manufacturing delays in the Lunar Module, so Apollo 9 and Apollo 8 swapped crews. As a result, based on the normal crew rotation, this put Armstrong in line to command Apollo 11. But, of course, this was not official yet. During the Apollo training, Armstrong was involved in one major incident. To give the astronauts experience with how the lunar module would fly on its final landing descent, NASA commissioned Bell Aircraft to build two lunar landing research vehicles and later augmented with three lunar landing test vehicles, nicknamed the Flying Bedsteads. They simulated the moon's one-sixth of Earth gravity by using a turbofan engine to support the remaining five-sixths of the craft's weight. On May 6, 1968, about 100 feet above the ground, Armstrong's controls started to degrade, and the lunar lander test vehicle began banking. Fortunately, Armstrong ejected safely, but later analysis suggested that if he had ejected just a half second later, his parachute would not have opened in time. Armstrong's only injury was from biting his tongue. Even though he was nearly killed, Armstrong maintained that without the lunar lander research vehicle and the lunar lander test vehicle, 
the lunar landings would not have been successful as they gave commanders valuable experience in the behavior of lunar landing craft. Here's a clip from Neil. We, uh, we needed something to uh, simulate landing on the moon. The moon has no atmosphere, so you're flying in a vacuum, and the gravity is much lower. So the characteristics of the flying machine in that environment are very different than they are here on Earth. And we felt we had to understand those variations and be able to feel comfortable in flying the lunar module to, uh, in, to the surface of the moon in, in the actual conditions. So this device uh, did, did provide very good training and, uh, and experience in that mode. Uh, unfortunately, it was a complicated machine with a lot of uh, different rockets and wires and claptrap of all this, and uh, it consequently was subject to uh, malfunction. And uh, one of those malfunctions snapped on me one day, and I lost my control system. And uh, you know pretty quickly that uh, you, it's, it's time to go and part company with, with your friend. And uh, I, I did that. and. Uh, it, the ejection seat worked very well, fortunately, and, uh, and I bit my tongue, but that was the only real damage. After Armstrong served as backup commander for Apollo 8, Deke Slayton officially offered him the post of commander of Apollo 11 on December 23, 1968, as Apollo 8 orbited the moon. Here's how Neil remembered it. So I was the alternate or backup commander for the flight around the moon, Apollo 8. Right. And as soon as they took off, I was out of job, of course. And uh, the boss called me in a few days later and said, would you take the third flight down the, down the road, uh, 11? Mm -hmm. No, 8 was in the air, 9 was in the hangar yet, it hasn't, it hadn't started to fly, and 10 was, uh, the lunar module had not flown. Uh, there was no way we could predict what each of those flights would do. It was going to depend on the success and the accomplishments of each, each flight along the build-up period. But Apollo 8 worked well, 9 worked well, 10 did far better than expected, took a lunar module actually around the moon and, and tried out its propulsion systems and its navigation systems and communicating with two spacecraft simultaneously. All these things were accomplished in just those four flights. One might think that Armstrong would be pretty excited at the possibility of becoming the first man on the moon, but he was too busy for that. Um, no, I can't say that I did. I uh, we, we, were, we, were, we were focused on, on progress and yes. making, making those incremental steps, thousands of little incremental steps that got you closer, yes. and uh, we're looking for success in those steps and not focusing on that end goal too much. In a meeting that was not made public until the publication of Armstrong's biography in 2005, Deke Slayton told Neil that although the planned crew was Armstrong as commander, lunar module pilot Buzz Aldrin, and command module pilot Michael Collins, Deke was offering the chance to replace Aldrin with Jim Lovell. After thinking it over for a day, Armstrong told Slayton he would stick with Aldrin, as he had no difficulty working with him and thought Jim Lovell deserved his own command. Replacing Aldrin with Lovell 
would have made Lovell the Lunar Module pilot, unofficially the lowest-ranked member, and Armstrong could not justify placing Lovell, the commander of Gemini 12, in the number three position of the crew. With that decision made, after Apollo 10 and the success of 7, 8, and 9, NASA management was wanting to attempt the first landing with Apollo 11. This is how Neil remembered it. Well, you know, I, I, was, uh, I was asked by the bosses, uh, are, do you think you and your guys are ready? Are, are you, are, is there anything that you're really concerned about that you, you don't think we understand well enough that you, we can't go on. And so I was involved in those discussions. And, and, and I have to say, well, uh, you know, it'd be nice to have another month. But we were in a race here, and uh, there was some, some evidence that things were going on among our, our competitors, and we, we had to take the opportunity we had it. And I had to say, no, we're, we're ready. We are ready to go. Apollo 11 was going to the moon, but would Neil be the first to walk on the moon? A March 1969 meeting between Slayton, George Lowe, Bob Gilruth, and Chris Kraft determined that Armstrong should be the first person on the moon, in some part because NASA management saw Armstrong as a person who did not have a large ego. But at a press conference in April of 1969, the reason given for Neil going first was due to the design of the lunar module cabin. The hatch opened inwards and to the right, making it difficult for the lunar module pilot on the right side to exit first. Deke Slayton added, quote, Secondly, just on pure protocol basis, I figured the commander ought to be the first guy out. I changed it as soon as I found that they had the timeline that showed that. Bob Gilruth approved my decision, end quote. At the time of their meeting, the four men did not know about the hatch consideration. The first knowledge of the meeting outside the small group came when Kraft wrote his 2001 autobiography. On July 16, 1969, Armstrong received a crescent moon carved out of styrofoam from the pad leader Gunter Vent, who described it as a key to the moon. In return, Armstrong gave Vent a ticket for a space taxi good between two planets. During the Apollo 11 launch, Armstrong's heart reached a top rate of 110 beats per minute. He found the first stage to be the loudest, much noisier than the Gemini 8 Titan II launch, and the Apollo command service module was relatively roomy compared to the Gemini capsule. This ability to move around was suspected to be the reason why none of the Apollo 11 crew suffered from space sickness, while members of previous crews did. Armstrong was especially happy as he had been prone to motion sickness as a child and could experience nausea after doing long periods of aerobatics. Here's a clip of Neil describing the liftoff of Apollo 11. It's a, it's a time of, of meditation and a time when you're, when you're focused, 
uh, on what you're really trying to do. But at the same time, there's a, a certain amount of uh, relaxed atmosphere. And the reason is these rockets usually don't go off on time. <laughs> and and uh, so, you, so you're thinking, well, we'll get down to two minutes and then they'll, they'll call a hold and then they'll cancel the flight and we'll go another day. So don't get too excited here about, about this. And, and you're always surprised when, when it actually lights and you, and you go, oh, the, the noise at, at liftoff uh, from, from the pad is ex extremely loud. And uh, you get not only the noise of the engine, but the reflected noise that's coming up off the ground. And so consequently, for, until you fly out of that reflection after about 30 seconds, you, it's very difficult to hear anything, even with our special helmets and earphones and, and so on. But after you get out of the ref uh, out of the reflected sound, it gets pretty reasonable. A very shaky ride in the in that particular rocket, the Saturn V. Saturn V was a uh, three three thousand ton uh, machine, and uh, it's uh, that's it, with an energy uh, enough to uh, more than that to lift you off the pad. It's uh, it's an environment that's. Uh, that's interesting. Very shaky ride in the early part of the launch, uh, through the first stage. This, the second and third stages are just as smooth as the first stage is uh, shaky. The objective of Apollo 11 was to land safely, rather than to touch down with precision on a particular spot. Three minutes into the lunar descent burn, Armstrong noted that craters were passing about two seconds too early which meant the Eagle would probably touch down beyond the planned landing zone by several miles. Here's Neil describing the landing. Lunar descent from lunar orbit down to the surface is, is uh, a very complex part of, of the overall flight, uh, with a lot of things happening simultaneously and, and uh, not a lot of time to consider ab abnormalities when they arise. Uh, in the middle of uh, the descent, uh, we, our computer did complain at us that was, it was having a problem, but it didn't admit responsibility. Uh, uh, so the, uh, I, I have to admit, I, I didn't understand the nature of this particular alarm. Uh, we had a lot, the computer had a lot of kind of complaints, but I didn't know them all. This one, this one was unusual. And... Uh, we asked uh, Mission Control on, on Earth to help us solve the problem, and uh, they didn't take very long to say, uh, you're cleared to continue, uh, uh, that it was, a, it was an overload problem in the computer, but the central part of the computer that was doing our calculations of, of our position and our navigation was working properly, and that was good news. So we continued on to the, toward the landing site, but... Uh, then the computer showed us where it intended to land, and it, uh, it was a very bad location. It was on the, on the side of a uh, large crater, about, uh, oh, I, I suppose, uh, 100, and, 100 or 150 meters uh, in diameter, and with very steep slopes covered with very large boulders, not a good place to land at all. So I, I took over manually and flew it like a helicopter, uh, out to the west uh, of direction, you got into a smoother area with not so many rocks. Found a 
found a, a level area and uh, was able to get it down there safely before we ran out of fuel. So it's like 20 seconds of fuel left. According to the Apollo 11 mission report, during the landing, Armstrong's heart rate reached 160 beats per minute. A short time later, Armstrong took his first step off the limb and uttered the now famous words. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. The estimated global audience at that moment was 450 million listeners out of the then estimated world population of 3.6 billion people. About 20 minutes after the first step, Aldrin joined Armstrong on the surface and became the second human to set foot on the moon, and the duo began their task of investigating how easily a person could operate on the lunar surface. Early on, they unveiled a plaque commemorating their flight and also planted the flag of the United States. Shortly thereafter, President Nixon called the astronauts by telephone from his Oval Office. It was the President of the United States who was speaking from his office in the White House. And uh, a, very, a very nice congratulatory message uh, from, from the President on behalf of, uh, of everyone who had worked on the, on the project. And, uh, and that, that was a, a, surprise, a very pleasant surprise. And, uh, and uh, again, yeah. there was work to be done, so get back to job. After the astronauts re-entered the lunar module, the hatch was closed and sealed. While preparing for the liftoff from the lunar surface, Armstrong and Aldrin discovered that in their bulky spacesuits, one of them had broken the ignition system circuit breaker for the ascent engine. Using part of a pin, they pushed the circuit breaker in to activate the launch sequence. Here's how Neil remembered it. When, when you're in this in the spacesuit and, and it's pressurized, it's very cumbersome. You're the like the Frankenstein monster, and you have this big backpack back. And if you turn, that backpack is swinging around. And uh, and my colleague in one of these motions banged into the circuit breaker panel with his backpack, and and there's a lot of a uh, lot, lot of circuit breakers over there, lots of ones, and so he could have picked something. That was not very important, but he banged into the circuit breaker that controlled the SN engine that got us back in, in, into orbit. Uh, I think that uh, that when we recognized that, we thought uh, it probably will hold, but uh, maybe we better see if there's a way to increase our chances of, uh, of, of making sure the circuit breaker wouldn't automatically disengage. So we took a piece of a, of a uh, plastic pen, uh, a magic marker kind of pen, and uh, made, a, made a little crutch to hold it in place. You know, I really think that had we not done that, we'd still been yes. all right, but uh, it was just insurance. It's nice to get a little insurance. Yes. After ignition, the lunar module continued to its rendezvous and docked with Columbia, the command and service module. The three astronauts returned to Earth and splashed down in the Pacific Ocean to be picked up by the USS Hornet.
Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode 207 of the Space Rocket History Podcast, entitled Apollo 11, Commander Neil Armstrong, Part 2. I want to give a big shout out to all my longtime listeners. Thanks for staying subscribed and extend a warm welcome to my new listeners. I'm glad you're here. Make sure you sign up for the email list and connect with me on Twitter and Facebook. You can do all that and download every single episode of the podcast, even the ones that are not on iTunes. You can download them right on the homepage, spacerockethistory.com. Today, we salute my moon emoji donors. These donors have donated for three years in a row. Thanks, Moon Emoji Donators, for your continued support. And next year, you can be promoted up to the Satellite Donors. Hmm. Had several afterthoughts about this week's episode. First, I want to give credit to Evo TV in Australia. Most of the clips came from a 2011 interview of Neil Armstrong. So good job. appreciate that, Evo TV. Uh... I cut out a lot of details about uh, Neil's moon experience because I'm going to cover it in detail in later episodes, so I didn't want to duplicate any more than I had to, but uh, it's really hard to fit Neil into three episodes. I've done two now, and I still have a ton of stuff. I don't know if I can fit him into three, but I'll do my best. It seemed to me like Neil had a little different experience than Buzz during launch. You may recall on the uh, Buzz episodes that he said liftoff was barely discernible and not loud, whereas Neil called it loud and shaky. It's strange how people remember the same event differently. Judging from all of Neil's incidents... It really looks like he completely got over the fear of death problem he had as a child. (laughs) Can you imagine he ejects out of the lunar landing test vehicle within a half second of losing his life and then calmly returns to the office to do some paperwork? (laughs) He was a steely-eyed missile man. Okay, I posted some pictures and audio for this week's episode on the website, spacerockethistory.com. Hope you check that out. I was pleased to receive several donations to support the podcast. John L. donated at the Vostok level. Karsten O. at Copenhagen Suborbitals in Denmark donated at the Gemini level. Did you know the folks at Copenhagen Suborbitals are attempting to put a person into space with their own rockets, what they're building. It's pretty amazing. I checked it out over at the website. Its website is copenhagensuborbitals.com. Check that out. It's really an interesting project they have going there. Continuing with the donations, James P. from Texas donated at the Apollo level, and he wanted me to mention that uh, Heritage Auctions out of Dallas is having a huge space memorabilia auction on May 19th. This is not gift shop 
type items. It, it is personal collections of several astronauts, and they have some equipment there too. So this is uh, something, if you have some money, that you might enjoy having. And they accept phone and internet bids. Uh, but still, even looking at the catalog was kind of a treat too. I saw an Apollo guidance computer and a Marquardt thruster. That piqued my interest, but of course, I don't have that kind of money to spend on it. But you may, so I'm letting you know. Continuing with donations, Tony L. pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level. Thank you, Tony. That brings the total number of Patreons to 110, with a goal of reaching 150 before the end of the year. And our overall donors are up to 161, with a goal of reaching 300. For those of you enjoying the content here on the podcast, may I suggest you participate in the funding of it. Keep in mind, you don't have to donate much. You can make a one-time $10 donation at the Vostok level or sign up with Patreon for $1 donation per month. Sort of like a voluntary subscription. Just go to the homepage and click on the links on the top right side of the page. All donors are rewarded with their name on the donors page on the website spacerockethistory.com based on their donation levels. I want to encourage everyone to feel free to share the podcast and link to the homepage or a particular episode on social media. And we have reached the end of content for this episode. I have some off-topic thoughts. I think you'll want to hear these. So I'm recommending, even if you don't normally stick around for it, that you do stick around for these. Thanks for sticking around, folks. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Next week, we will continue with the amazing Mr. Neil Armstrong. Now, in the last few weeks, I've uh, told you about my visit to the Kennedy Space Center, and I want to finish that up this week, and then I have a little bit of a surprise at the end. So hang in there with me. (laughs) KSC has a uh, new absolutely beautiful building and exhibit for the Atlanta Space Shuttle. Now, Atlantis flew 33 times, I believe, and it was the last shuttle to fly. Now, on the outside of the building, they have a shuttle fuel tank and two solid boosters on display. So you can actually see this from the road before you even get into the visitor center. And it gives you a great photo opportunity, and it gives you perspective on the size of the fuel tank and the SRBs. Now, as you enter the building, there's a presentation about the shuttle, about the Atlantis. And then after that, you enter into the second story of the museum, where they have the Atlantis suspended from the ceiling with the cargo bay doors open. You can see all the scars and the scratches. You can get a really good close look at it. You can see it from the second floor and the first floor. You can see all the underneath part from the first floor. It is an excellently, it's it's tilted slightly to the side and it looks great. Now, you can go down from the second floor to the first floor by stairs, elevator, or by slide, which is what we did. (laughs) There are over 60 educational touch screen exhibits and space age 
simulators. They have a Hubble exhibit, an ISS exhibit, and then they have the Shuttle Launch Simulator. That was impressive. You, uh, it tilts you back and shakes you up as though you were launching in the shuttle. It was fantastic. I love that thing. It, it's similar. Just a little similar to theme park rides, but this was really a good one. I enjoyed that thing. Another building, uh, the last one I'm going to cover, I think, is the IMAX Theater. They play two movies, the Hubble 3D movie and Journey to Space. Now, I was informed that this will be updated soon. Okay, for a few dollars more, you can take three different KSC up-close bus tours. The first was the Explore Tour, and what that was, the bus tour stops at select launch pads and the Vehicle Assembly Building, as well as the NASA Causeway for a panoramic view of rocket launch sites. So you base basically the, the launch sites and the VAB. You can't go in the VAB, but you can see it from the outside. You can't miss it from the outside, folks, let me tell you that, because that thing is big. Okay, the next tour you can take for a few dollars more is the Launch Control Center tour. You get to go inside the Launch Control Center building up to the third floor and you can see where they used to launch the shuttles and what they're going to do next and things like that. And you just walk around there and you can see it. It's really nice. And then the third tour I want to mention is more of the historical tour. It's the, called the Then and Now Tour. I really enjoyed this one a whole lot. It, you get to uh, relive the launch of America's first satellite, visit the site of Mercury and Gemini launches, and tour the first launch bunkers. That's right. You get to see inside the bunker. I thought that was great. Okay, now, that's pretty much it for the KSC standard things. I was able to get a special treat because of the podcast. I was able to meet with the Chief Operating Officer of the Kennedy Space Center. That was Mr. Theron Protzi. We spent an hour together, and he informed me about the future expansion and evolving and a new technology coming to the Visitor Center. Theron told me his goal was to make the Visitor Complex a space experience rather than a space museum. During our conversation, I asked Mr. Potsy if he wanted to say anything to my listeners. So, I've got a couple clips of him talking directly to you. Our goal of the Kennedy Space Center Visitor Complex is to inspire minds to a memorable space experience. So, the evolving content is showing guests what's new, what's coming in the future, and also telling a story in a new way with new interactives and immersion. Uh, so that guests can feel space is really our goal. So the next three years, that is our vision to make that happen. And then at the same point in time, provide an educational experience that is bar none the gold standard. And with our new education center coming in this year, uh, it is going to be a whole new way where people of any age can go in there, train like an astronaut, go to Mars, simulate being on Mars Base One, learn all about STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math, share those activities through the programming, learn, have fun, and become a good teamwork player so that uh, 
we can hopefully inspire those those young generations to go to Mars and the older generations such as myself to support uh, space exploration. So um, that is our goal in the very near future and I think we're heading in the right direction with a solid master plan. He also spoke about the Mars rover touring the country now. And then the Mars rover that's touring the United States. We hope to see that on the Today Show with Matt Lauer, but we're, uh, we still have to reach out to them to make but. It is. It is designed to be a traveling exhibit that hopefully will inspire those young kids and say, I want to be part of the space industry. So, and not necessarily an astronaut, you know. So with the education center, that's why we put a plant lab in there, you know. So we put, we have a solar and a robotics section as well where they, they learn how to program robots to clean off solar cells. So teaming up with a lot of great NASA scientists and a lot of great contractors over there to bring that technology here to the Vizricon. Mr. Prozzi also wanted to mention the Summer Mars program. Two of the Summer Mars promotion. That's a, that's a child for a, ch- a child's ticket. Look for it in the schools because it's coming nationwide. So fifth grade. Fifth grade, yep. We kind of deem that as the Mars generation. Yes. Uh, so um, that's what we're looking to do. And we're actually looking to have Mr. Cabana, the center director, kind of do a video and kind of play the Uncle Sam part of that too. Um, so we're excited about that. I had a great time uh, talking with Mr. Protsy, and I sure am appreciative of him taking the time to talk with me and then with you. Thank you very much. That's about all I have for this week. I hope to have episode 208 up by next Thursday. So long for now.